Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. I am joined by uh, two men I haven't seen all weekend, which is something that they have in common with the Nationals offense. Uh, first among them is multimedia celebrity Zach Cram. Zach. Hello. And uh, on the other line is Big Lindy, Ben Lindbergh. Hi, how are you? I I am ambivalent. You know what, Ben? Yeah. I have a lot of complex emotions right now. Uh, some some uh, misgivings about, frankly, what is going to end up looking like a more entertaining World Series than it probably was. Uh, and I guess I say that in uh, full expectation of a, re- of a reverse jinx and we get a barn burner uh, for games six and seven on Tuesday and Wednesday. But we're going to talk about the World Series that was, the World Series that is yet to be. Uh, I guess we, we last talked before this World Series even started and the uh, Nationals immediately jumped out to a two nothing lead uh ben how much did how confident were you i guess were that that uh the nationals were sort of on their way to a to a fairly easy title well the stats were certainly in favor of them the odds that had been in the astros favor to start the series did swing to the nationals just because you spot any team a two-game lead especially with them going home they're gonna be favored but even though the history of previous World Series where one team went, went up to nothing, it was pretty overwhelmingly in favor of the team that went up to nothing, as you would expect. None of those teams that were down 0-2 were as good as the 2019 Astros, I don't think. So I certainly didn't consider it over, but you had to feel pretty good about their chances having taken two in Houston and beaten Cole and Verlander in back-to-back games for the first time this year. Like That's what you would have to do to beat the Astros, and the Nationals did do it, but then everything suddenly turned in the Astros' favor. Yeah, Zach, what a... I guess. And then what happened? Well, I think taking a step back, the funny thing is if last week, as we talked about the series, we had said, you know, after five games, it'll probably be Houston three, Washington two. We I would have expected that. that. But- well, <laughs> y- you didn't. You, you picking a sweep. I uh, didn't say that, but I think hey, that I, was... I might get a Houston sweep anyway. It just yeah. will come after two early uh, home losses. Yeah, but that probably would have been a median expectation. It's just the way we got here is unexpected. But what happened is a few things, mainly the Nationals stopped hitting. They uh, lost the ability to hit with runners in scoring position, which seems to be a theme in most playoff series these days. That's what happened with the Yankees against Houston. And the Nationals scored three runs in the three games in D.C. Uh, The big news yesterday in in Game 5 was that Max Scherzer was scratched from his start just before the game, uh, robbing us of a potential Cole versus Scherzer rematch, a showdown. Uh, but ultimately that probably wouldn't have ended up mattering because the Astros only allowed one run and it's really hard to lose a game when that's true. So heading back to Houston, we're wondering about the Strasburg versus Verlander matchup. We're wondering whether Scherzer could come back for a potential game seven. But the main question for the series right now is, can the Nationals score multiple runs in a game? Because if not, uh, none of those other questions really matter. It's time. I find myself really missing the juice ball at times like this because uh, they lost game three by three runs, and they were you know they were in all three of these games until pretty late, and the uh, the Astros sort of tagged on an insurance touchdown in a couple of these games off the, the back end of Washington's bullpen, um, but we didn't get obviously didn't get uh, Scherzer at all, didn't get Strasburg at all. I don't think Joe Ross pitched that bad last night. I don't think uh, Anibal Sanchez pitched that bad uh, on Friday. You know, Corbin had some early lumps, but we've seen the the Nationals sort of get back into games uh, where he's been touched up in the in the first inning. Um, but it a three run lead seems a lot a lot more insurmountable than it did a couple weeks ago. I'm like very cognizant of just watching all these fly balls die. Uh, you know, 20, 20 feet short of the track. Uh, yeah, also cognizant of Anthony Rendon somehow uh, being unwilling to take the first pitch in a plate appearance, but we can get to that a little bit later. It just seems like that three-run lead is a little bit, you know, it may, and maybe this is just all in my head, and it's mostly just they're not coming through with runners in scoring position, like you said, Zach. But it does, you know, it it doesn't feel like there's as much chaos as as one would have expected for games that have been fairly close most of the way. Well, it kind of feels like. 
against a team as good in all facets of the game as the Astros are, that you need to maximize all of your opportunities. And the Nationals just haven't done that. Uh, in game five, uh, in the top of the second inning, Houston hit a two-run homer. But in the bottom of the second inning, the Nationals let off with a Juan Soto single and then a Howie Kendrick single. So they had runners on first and third with no outs. And even in the moment, it kind of felt like the Nationals need to score a couple runs this inning because they're not going to get another chance against Cole. And what happens? Ryan Zimmerman strikes out. Victor Robles uh, grounds into a double play. The threat is gone. And that happened in game three as well when uh, Davey Martinez did not pinch hit for Anibal Sanchez with a runner on third, one out, down by a run. Uh, Sanchez obviously does not drive the run in and that threat is thwarted as well. And it just feels like the Nationals have had a couple opportunities to break through, but they haven't done so. And once those are squandered, they're not going to get those further chances down the line. Yeah, the Sanchez, I, and this was the, the focus of my column after Friday night's game, is the decision to let Sanchez hit for himself. Uh, it really felt like a turning point in the series, that that was the moment where the Nationals really let the let the Astros get a full breath of air, like get up off the mat and collect themselves. And once that happened, you know, there might not be any stopping them. Um, you know, Ben is there, you know, Zach mentioned the, that the result is perhaps not as surprising as the way that we get there, but you know, this is what we do. We construct post hoc narratives out of, uh, out of events that sometimes don't really have any rhyme or reason to them, but it, is there like a turning point in the series that, that really sticks out to you? Well, I think that was the first moment where we could really criticize Dave Martinez, criticize a managerial move. Did it actually swing the series? I mean, probably not, because probably you send up a pinch hitter for Anibal Sanchez there and he makes it out. I mean, that's what the most likely outcome is. And then, you know, you you come back and again, it, it makes it hard to criticize Dave Martinez's managerial moves or say Lance Barksdale's umpiring. I mean, you can certainly criticize that, but in the sense that it probably wouldn't have changed the outcome of any game, which is usually the case. I think in the postseason, we make a lot of managerial moves and you have to know in the back of your head that probably if the manager had made the different move, the move that you think he should have made, the outcome of the game would not have changed because, you know, usually you make the right move. Sometimes it backfires. You make the wrong move. Sometimes it works out. And often, unless you lose by a one-run margin or something, which has not been the case in this series since game one, then you usually can't really pin it on the Nationals. I think it does kind of come down to the fact that home teams in the series are four for 38 with runners in scoring position, and thus no home team has yet won a game. What I am wondering in the wake of the Scherzer scratch on Sunday is how much we sort of have to look at Dave Martinez's moves in a more forgiving light from the weekend, because according to Scherzer's pregame press conference on Sunday, he started experiencing these symptoms and getting treatment for them on Friday, and then he continued to get it on Saturday. So Martinez said in his pregame press conference that that had been uh, on the back of his mind on Saturday when he used, say, Fernando Rodney instead of bringing in Hudson and Doolittle. The game was you know, probably a losing effort by that point anyway. I don't know whether that played a role on Friday, but you could sort of factor that in and say, well, if he was less aggressive, it was because he knew that he might have to get more innings from these guys on Sunday if Scherzer couldn't start. Yeah, I I think that's a good point about you know looking at these moves in a more forgiving light. Certainly, I feel for Davey Martinez because you know I don't think he made the right decision in Game Three, but it you know between uh, Sanchez striking out bunting and allowing runs in the next two innings that really worked out about as poorly as as it could have. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely feel a lot of sympathy because, you know, asking you a question about narrative and identifying uh, a turning point was probably not the smartest thing I've ever done. <laughs> and yet, you know, sold it to an extent that even I had not anticipated. So, you know, sometimes you really do get punished for your, your bad decisions uh, beyond what, uh, you know, beyond perhaps even reasonable expectations. Well, it's, I mean, this series has been another illustration of the silliness of the concept of momentum, right? Because after game two, everyone was talking about how the Nationals had momentum and, and they did in terms of results. They had won eight straight in pretty convincing fashion and 18 of their last 20 and then they're heading home to a, a loud crowd that hasn't seen a world series game at home in its lifetime i mean momentum was firmly in favor of the nationals and then they they went 19 they were outscored 19 to 3 over the weekend so 
Like I, I also read Bill Barnwell in 2014. Like I'm, you know, I'm not asking you. Like, did the did the Nationals have have all the momentum? Like, obviously, you have momentum until you don't. Mm-hmm. But when you step back and look at something from, uh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you can identify turning points in a in a story, and that's what a playoff series is. You know, it's not just a, you know, this is not the XKCD com comic where you know we're creating lore for random number generators like there you know, there is a, a narrative thread to to this series and i think we can identify a couple moments where the nationals really had a chance to um i don't know to put houston away you know i don't think that i think there are moments where where you can identify a player or a team just collapsing or capitulating or, or panicking and I don't think anybody got that vibe off the Astros after the first two games. Like they were always going to be able to take advantage of a of an opportunity to get back in the series, but the Nationals did let them off the off the hook a couple times. And I forget which one of you guys said that, but or said this, but the idea of the Nationals need to make the most of their advantages, and they've had a couple chances against Will Harris with men on base, uh, and he's been incredible uh, so far this series. You know. Every time something like that happens, you could just feel a little bit of the air leaking out of the balloon. Yeah, and it was unfortunate for the crowd that had very little to cheer for. It it had things to cheer against at times, but really there was just not a lot for them to get excited about. It was very loud early on, and then almost inevitably the Astros just shut it down. I mean, I guess the the first inning in game five was the first first inning in the series where there weren't any hits on either side. But in the previous games, the the Astros just kind of took the crowd out of it. And even in game five, the Astros scored two in the second inning, which turned out to be the winning run. So there just kind of wasn't much. The crowd would occasionally try to get back into it if there was a late rally or something. But again, most of those rallies ended up fizzling out. And so it it got kind of quiet. And in terms of uh, more macro level missed opportunities, the Nationals, I think, had a prime opportunity in game four facing the one Astros starter who is not a past or future Cy Young winner. Uh, in Jose Arquiti, and then he shut them out for five innings. It was, to that point, the best starting pitching performance of anyone in the series so far. And I think that just sort of underscores how disastrous the weekend was in D.C., in which they were up 2-1, to one, but Game 4 really felt like a turning point, even before we knew about the Scherzer injury, just because uh, if the Nationals had lost Game 4, it's hard to imagine them beating Garrett Cole a second time, and so on and so on. So... The fact that they weren't even able to threaten the Astros' worst starter uh, emphasizes just how impotent the offense has been. Yeah, that's the. I mean, your Keedy pitched well. I think. Yeah, um, not, not it, to take away credit from him because he was quite good. It just he hadn't made a start all month, and then they kind of throw him out there, having not trusted him to make a start against Tampa, and not trusted him to make a start against the Yankees, and then he tames the Nationals in the biggest start of his career. But that, yeah, that's one that that you like. If you've got Patrick Corbin, who's your big free agent signing, like the the player that you you picked up instead of keeping Bryce Harper uh, against know, somebody that, like you said, the Astros hadn't trusted to make it start so far this postseason. Like you got to have that game, particularly at home, particularly with with uh, Cole and then two Cy Young winners coming right down the pike. I mean, it, it doesn't matter how good the uh, the national starters are like if they're if they take that game and go up three one, you know, then you've got two, then you you know you've got three shots to just to put the Astros away. I think the that's eminently doable, even against a team as good as Houston. But tell me a credit to to Rikidi for pitching well. Um, some of this is bad luck. Some of this is maybe the Astros have figured out how to. Uh, had a tackle Juan Soto. Like he's been seeing more breaking balls. That's been the the talk uh, over the past couple of games. But yeah, they they just really had to have that game four, and they barely put up a fight. All right, so I, I think we we've, we've covered how we got here. We're faced with two games uh, in Houston to wrap this up. These will be this well Tuesday, maybe the last game of the season. Uh, we've got Steven Strasburg. Uh, against Justin Verlander uh, in Game Six, and then maybe Max Scherzer. Actually, we haven't. We've sort of danced around the the Scherzer thing. Uh, do we want to talk about that for a couple minutes? Because uh, so he was scheduled to start Game Five, uh, woke up and 
He said he couldn't move his arm, couldn't lift his arm, couldn't get dressed, could bear, had to to get out of bed in a very like, frankly, very relatable uh, way, like sort of rolling out and bracing himself on his left arm. Um, and uh, just physically, I, I think anybody with any serious appreciation for Max Scherzer's uh, career knows the level of, of pain or physical impediment that would have to keep him from from being on the mound. This is a guy who fouled the ball off his own face and made a start uh, as as planned the next day. And Joe Ross didn't pitch bad, I think, in, in game five, but he wasn't peak Scherzer. So it, what do you, I, I think the the conversation about this has, has actually been pretty solid. Um, that everybody recognizes that if he were capable of making that start, he would have been on the mound. Uh, and there's really nothing you can do about it. Yeah, Scherzer's eagerness to pitch has almost made him a meme at this point. <laughs> like we all have gifts of Scherzer running in from the bullpen earlier in the postseason. We always joke about how it's impossible to take the ball from him, how you'd have to be brave to actually go out to the mound and tell him he's done for the day. So there is just not ever a whiff of, oh, Scherzer doesn't want the ball at the big moment. He wants the ball seemingly as much as anyone has ever wanted the ball. So if he could not go, then I think we all understand that it was impossible to go. He said he literally couldn't move his arm. He couldn't do anything with his arm. Mike Rizzo described what Scherzer was feeling as ungodly pain, and I believe it. (laughs) So Scherzer has dealt with neck spasms before. There was an episode in 2017 where he had to be pulled from a start and then was scratched from a subsequent start and ended up going on the injury list for a while. But he says this is worse than that time. He had a cortisone shot on Sunday, and he said the doctors told him that it would take at least 48 hours for that to kick in and hopefully take effect and loosen things up. So you do have a scenario where the Nats get through game six behind Strasburg, and then you get a Granky Scherzer matchup in game seven, which would be pretty exciting. Like for drama purposes, this could work out well for all of us. We just don't really know now what his chances are of making that start. And if he does make that start, will he be compromised at all? Will he be less effective? Will be, will he be less durable? So it's hard to say if he can't go, then I guess the, the nationals can take him off the roster and replace him with Austin Voth or someone and, and get them some more bullpen depth. And because they didn't use Anibal Sanchez in game five, they can hold him back in game six and he can make the start in game seven. So that's something. But obviously, if you don't have a healthy Scherzer, that's a big blow. I had three reactions when I learned this injury news. The first was as Ben is talking about the actual effects this has on the series, which seem pretty uh, substantial, especially if Scherzer can't go at full strength in Game 7. The second one is sympathy. Like, Max Scherzer is uh, a veteran. He is now 35 years old. It's unclear how many more opportunities he will have to win a World Series. And if you look on the the whole decade during which Scherzer has been one of the best pitchers in baseball, probably the two biggest disappointing playoff teams besides the Dodgers are the Nationals in the latter half of the decade and the Tigers in the first half of that decade. And Scherzer has been on both teams, and he was in awesome rotations basically every single year, unable to win a World Series. And he would have had the opportunity for an all-time pitching performance uh, the series tied to two going up up against maybe the best pitcher in baseball, and he doesn't get to make that opportunity. I, I think there's a lot of sympathy for his miss there. Uh, and number three is just disappointment from an entertainment perspective, because heading into this series, all the talk was about the starting pitching. I wrote about it. Everyone wrote about it, uh, about how this was maybe the best group of World Series starting pitchers ever. And we haven't really gotten a classic pitcher's duel. Game one, uh, Garrett Cole uh, gave up a few runs. That was a good game, but uh, it wasn't like a Jack Morris-John Smoltz pitcher's duel. Game two was pretty good, but again, the same. And then since then, one of the starting pitchers has failed every time. And what ends up happening is you have all this anticipation and maybe our, our expectations were too high. But really, if you look at the statistics, none of the starting pitchers until Cole in game five yesterday had turned in a performance uh, they were capable of. And now we're waiting for maybe Strasburg Verlander turns that in in game six. But now we're 0 for 5 at that point. 
Yeah, just to put a number on that series of of Max Scherzer playoff disappointments, he's pitched in the postseason in uh, seven of the past nine years and has still not won a ring. And like it to to do that so frequently within your prime to where like it's it's uh, statistically improbable that you didn't win a World Series. That's got to I mean, the the level at which he he wants to be out there uh, probably can't be overstated. Um so I I do actually want to touch on on something you've been talking about, Zach, which was the way that the Nationals set up their rotation using Patrick Corbin in relief in Game One, pushing his start back to Game Four. Uh, Corbin would have been in line not only to oppose Granky in Game Three, but to start a Game Seven on full rest if the if the rotation had shaken out the way um, the way everybody had expected. And you know if if they can get if Scherzer or sorry if I've been mixing up Scherzer and Strasburg, these two sort of broadly germanic uh s names uh and i don't know why and maybe i just need to maybe uh i need a quarter zone shot of my own um if they can get past houston in game six and set up that game seven obviously having Scherzer there uh instead of having to decide between sanchez and uh and corbin on three days rest uh is better you could or even if Scherzer's not there you can piggyback those two you could bring an extra pitcher off the off the 40 man, like Ben said, although at that point, you know, if you don't trust Austin both enough to to put him on the World Series roster over like Wander Suero or or Javi Guerra, I'm not sure how much you want him pitching in game seven of the World mm-hmm. Series. Uh, you know, I I don't think the Nationals are in terrible shape if they can hit. And you know, you've been you've been able to get to Verlander and Granky this postseason in a way that really hasn't been the case with Cole. Um, so you know, I as as much as I was, I was sort of assuming that that Houston was going to come back and win this. It's really, it really doesn't take any imagination at all to to see a path out of this for, for Washington. Yeah, I mean Verlander is already zero for two in potential series clinchers in this postseason. Granted, one of those starts was on short rest, which this one won't be. But the Nationals already beat him. The Yankees beat him, and Strasburg, as you mentioned uh, in your piece that went up today, he has pitched. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six playoff games uh, since game one of the 2017 series, and the Nationals have won every single one of them. That doesn't mean they're going to win the next one, but if there's a Nationals pitcher I would want on the mound in a potential elimination game, it's probably Strasburg at this point. So it's certainly possible they win and push it to a game seven, and then you run into, does Granke have his stuff? Can Garrett Cole pitch out of relief on short rest? And that's where it becomes fun, but it just seems like using that momentum word again, the series has swung so suddenly and yes, no home team has won a game yet. This series It's just really, really difficult to imagine Houston losing game six and seven at home. Yeah. I mean, we only have to cast our minds back to last week to remember the last time that the Nats beat the Astros in back-to-back games in Houston. So it's hardly inconceivable that that could happen and they don't have to face Cole in either of these games unless he comes out of the bullpen in game seven if they end up playing that one. So it's far from improbable. I mean, the odds are something like, you know, 20%, maybe 15, 20%. That is literally improbable. It it is improbable. Okay. (laughs) But (laughs) it it is far from impossible. Let's say that they are certainly capable of winning two games. I mean, it's two games. Again, I know it's the Astros. I know it's Houston. But again, it's two games. The Astros lost back-to-back games many times this season. The Nationals are certainly capable of beating them in two consecutive games. They're a very good team and if all works out well they may have two excellent starters going in these games we know they have at least one so it's not really a a stretch to see that happening but yes the odds are certainly in favor of the better team to begin with finishing off the underdog now that they have a, a game advantage and home field advantage as well yeah the i i just keep thinking back to the podcast you and i did ben after the the middle after the Yankee Stadium run of the 2017 ALCS, where the Astros lost all three games and looked terrible doing it, and yeah. I said, "Yeah, I, you know, unless something unexpected happens, I don't see a way out of this for them." And you said essentially that was the dumbest thing you'd ever heard, and sure <laughs> enough, the Astros won two games in a row and came right back. And so, like, I, I, it's a it's a good reminder of how quickly these things can 
can turn that, uh, you know, momentum certainly is as, uh, I don't know why we're talking about this while we're bringing up <laughs> momentum, the three of us in 2019, but, but it can, uh, it can turn, uh, turn on a dime as we've seen already once this, this world series. One thing I want is like, this is the world. Se- I think heading into heading into the postseason, this was probably the world series matchup. I was, was most eager to see, uh, because of these, uh, you know, Zach, you mentioned the the expectation versus reality of pitchers' duels. You know, the the combination of star power between Soto and Rendon, and uh, you know, name any one of six or seven different Astros. And I don't know, like we haven't really gotten a good game yet. Like game one was sort of exciting because because uh, the Nationals took that lead, and you know, could they could they hang on? Um, and since then, it's you know. I guess it's been easy for us because we could start writing our recaps in the fifth inning, but like, you know, we haven't gotten that classic game. And even, you know, I, I mentioned off the top that just because this went six games or this will end up going at least six games, I should say, uh, that people will probably look back on this and think, Oh, that was relatively close world series, but it's not going to end up being in reality as close as say 2015, where there, it only went five games, but all five of the, uh, all five of those games were interesting in some way. This is just, you know, I've felt like a real lack of, of in-game drama here. Uh, I'm curious, Zach, whether you uh, uh, agree with that assessment. Definitely. Uh, The series it reminds me of is actually go a year before 2015. It reminds me of the 2014 World Series, which we remember now for the Madison Bumgarner relief appearance in Game 7. And Game 7 was awesome. But the first game, uh, the first six games of that series included only one game decided by fewer than five runs. And that is kind of what the series has felt like from a tension standpoint. If you go to uh, the Baseball Gauge, which is a great website that tracks, among other things, uh, win probability added and the essentially the more win probability added over a game means there are lead changes there are runners on base a, a lot of drama and if you look at all of the world series games this decade games four and five are two of the 10 least dramatic world series games of this decade alongside three games from the 2014 world series so th- this world series hasn't put a single game in the top 10 uh, and it has two of the most boring World Series games of the decade. And that's kind of what it felt like. There hasn't been a single late lead change. Game one was the only one where the tying runs came to base in the late innings. And you're right. It's easy on us writers because unlike uh, when Kenley Jansen blows saves in the World Series, we don't have to scrap the 800 words we've written. But it's less fun from an entertaining standpoint. And I'm holding out hope that we still have a Game 7 Madison bump Bumgarner to come because if not it's kind of a bummer the the top play by championship win probability added in this entire postseason was still Jose Altuve's homer uh, to send Houston to the World Series and for a variety of reasons which we will discuss in a minute uh, it feels like the sport has kind of been downhill in the week and a half since then yeah there just haven't been a whole lot of unforgettable moments in this series so far as Zach mentioned we haven't seen a team come back from behind to take the lead since the fifth inning of game one. Since then, it's felt almost as if the outcome was set in stone pretty early on in each game. Granted, the final scores have not always reflected the margins during most of those games. I mean, it was closer than, you know, eight to one, seven to one, 12 to three for many of those games, but it just never really felt like a team was on the verge of coming back, which maybe is because we've just kind of internalized that no one can hit with runners in scoring position anymore. So it's almost as if every rally that starts, you just figure that it's going to end somehow, which is, you know, sort of superstitious, but it does keep happening. And then we haven't really seen the individual performances that would really stick in your mind either. As Zach mentioned, this was advertised as one of the best pitching matchup series of all time, and we haven't gotten that. We haven't really gotten individual performances that make you sit up and and take notice. And really, to get that, I think you need late lead changes and you need clutch hits that actually swing the outcome of a game. And we just haven't been getting those. So I think if we do end with a game six and we force a game seven and you get a classic game six and seven, then that can sort of salvage the reputation of the series. But if not, yeah, this is kind of go down as sort of a snooze, I'm afraid. 
Yeah, and it's not just the you know, we've all lived through boring World Series before, and maybe boring is too strong a word, but it, it just really felt like coming off both of the these uh, league championship series, whether that was sweeper, the Washington sweeper, or Houston's more dramatic uh, game six uh, walk off against against the Yankees. And the the rosters and you know all the the narratives like you you, you know narratives were were falling out of the trees coming into the series and it just it's promised big and and not really delivered and that's just been kind of disappointing and you know it, Ben you alluded to this and I think we it's worth devoting a significant amount of time to to what's going on outside the ballpark um, it's come at a time where baseball really. A, a, a sort of a, the the baseball is die, dying argument, and then sort of a counter argument that like all of that's overstated. And you know, as much as I complain about the the state of of labor relations or team buildings, or you know, complain about the the juice ball or the rising strikeout rate, baseball is generally an entertaining on field product. And uh, this has been a week where I really wish we could have uh, stuck to baseball, but it's made it very difficult. So I'll just there's been like a a range of of scandals you know running from various uh from from trivial to to really uh horrific uh over the past week and it's just been just one thing after another um it's like i I'm, I'm gonna read them off and i'm and i'm gonna have uh we didn't start the fire stuck in my head all day because of this um so let's sort of go like last night there was the uh President Trump showed up at, at Game Five and and was booed. And uh, there was a, a story. I think it was Mike Wise uh, reported that the learners had asked Major League Baseball not to put them in a position where they would have to sit with with the president or tell him he couldn't sit with them. And then Jim Crane going over to to say hello. And it was just you know I as as invigorating as I found the the lock him up chance. It just uh, just seemed like another uh, thing that that had gone wrong with major league baseball this week. There was Lance Barksdale one, not really the home plate umpire in game five, one, not really knowing where the outside corner was. And then it seemed like purposely vindictively uh, denying Jan Gomes a, a strike three because he got up too fast uh, in high leverage innings in a world series game, which just, it, I mean, which ordinarily would be horrifying behavior for an umpire. But then we had Rob Drake, major league umpire tweeting uh, to, th- he threatened to start a civil war, with uh, CIV AL uh, with his AR-15 if President Trump was impeached and later uh, apologized for the offensiveness of the allusion to gun violence without really reckoning with the uh, uh, the underlying white nationalist ideology. Uh, the pirates are in the the news. They're, fi- they're cleaning house uh, for reasons unspecified uh, because they seem to be perfectly happy finishing in last place with a rock bottom payroll every time there's the constant un- juicing and unjuicing of the ball. Uh, Rob Arthur's been uh, on top of this at baseball prospectus and major league baseball continues to, to obfuscate and uh, deny and, and just the, it's been a frustrating, the, the change to the, to the playing conditions is bad enough, but the lack of transparency. And then all on top of that is uh, the, the Brandon Taubman incident, uh, and the Astros handling of that. So after game six of the ALCS in the, the post-game celebration, then Astros assistant general manager Brandon Taubman uh, uh, directed uh, some comments toward a group of female reporters um, in a loud and menacing fashion, uh, objecting to the call call it objections in general to the the way the Astros arbitraged Roberto Asuna's domestic violence suspension. Um, uh, he... This incident was written about by Stephanie Epstein of Sports Illustrated. Uh, she published this right after we uh, we recorded and published this podcast last week. Uh, and uh, the Astros immediately called it a fabrication. Uh, it took them close to a full week to retract their statement and apologize to her. Uh, it took them several days to fire Taubman. Uh, there's how offensive the action itself is. And then there's the the sort of bewildering lack of of, of awareness on, on the part of the Astros organization in the way that they handled their, their collective response to this that I think are, you know, it just has everybody, you know, there's, we've got no choice but to cover this and talk about this because of, of the, the lack of humanity with which uh, certain members of the Astros organization behaved. And, you know, I, I don't know, Ben, you've talked about 
Taubman a couple times on Effectively Wild. You wrote about him uh, and this situation last week. I don't know if you've got anything more to say uh, on this issue or the, the sort of malaise, you know, this bizarre malaise that's that Major League Baseball has has enforced upon itself during what should be, you know, the greatest, most celebratory time of the season. Yeah, I mean, the Astros, I think, showed us all what they think and how they feel and operate when they traded for Osuna in the first place. But this took it to a new level, their lack of caring and and in Talman's case, just cruelty when it came to targeting these female reporters and one in particular who is wearing a, a domestic violence awareness bracelet. This was clearly a malicious act and it seemed clear to everyone based on the initial reporting that that was the case. And the Astros, you know, I don't want to turn this into a, a critique of their PR strategy, but they couldn't possibly have handled this worse. I mean, the initial act itself was pretty abominable, but if they had just, you know, provided a, a statement for Stephanie's story and said, Hey, we take this seriously and we're looking into this and we're talking to the people involved. And if they had just not released that statement that they waited for her report to come out before they then put out their own statement, questioning her credibility and smearing her reporting, which made it so much worse and just continued to echo as they didn't really, you know, respond in an adequate fashion. They initially sort of apologized. They let Tobman have a platform. They gave him the mic, essentially put out a press release in which Tobman, you know, had a very insincere sounding apology, just kind of checked every box when it came to bad apologies. And clearly he was, you know, lying, I think, the, even in, in that combination statement. of of as the father of a daughter and yes. the uh, uh, of sorry if anyone was offended. Right. And, and this <laughs> is not who I like, you know, it, it's it was like insincerity mad lips is yeah. really quite some some to say he called himself progressive and he bragged about his charitability which astros owner jim crane did as well you know he kind of came out and said well we're trying to raise awareness of domestic violence and you know we've donated three hundred thousand dollars which is he didn't a say donated in, said raised which yes, i think that's is an true. important uh, either way it's consideration a, yeah a drop in the bucket for a, a multi-billionaire who owns this multi-billion dollar organization so after that, uh, Jeff Luno went on the radio and said, you know, we may never know what Toppin's motivations were here. And by that point, he, you know, it was clear, I think, that there was serious doubt about whatever the Astros initially thought had happened, because it, it seems clear that someone with the Astros backed up Tobman's report. They had only spoken to Tobman and one other employee before they put out that initial statement, which just goes to show how how misguided it was to do that and, you know, implicated the whole organization at that point, too. It wasn't just what Tobin had said, but the fact that many people had seen the statement and signed off on it and said, sure, let's put that out in the world. And then it took days to get an apology for Tobin to be fired, for the initial accusation to be retracted. It just took so long and at every step of the way, there was an insincerity there. And, you know, Luno saying that he hadn't had time to talk to Epstein and, you know, lamenting his own hardship having to fire Tobin and answer these questions. It was just so mishandled from start to finish. And yes, they have now fired Tobin and they have retracted that initial statement, but it took so long to do it and it had to be really just dragged out of them that even though they did it, you you can't really sense that there's a whole lot of sincere contrition there. It was just kind of a matter of they were getting rightfully dragged everywhere and they belatedly responded to that. So it does seem to be a culture thing and something endemic to the organization to some extent, despite what Luno said about it. And we'll see now whether MLB's investigation will turn up anything else and lead to any additional discipline. But as I wrote last week, like the Astros really wanted this to go away. They wanted us to focus on the fact that it was the World Series. And because the World Series was not that entertaining, I think they were kind of, you know, <laughs> it, it worked against them in the sense that, I mean, ideally, we would have been paying attention to the story and bringing attention to this story anyway. But the fact that the World Series didn't do a great job of distracting anyone from this really made it the biggest story of the week. Zach, where are you? 
that may be an actual question, uh, considering it's been a while since you know, Ben and I have been talking for a while. Now. No, I, I think it feels increasingly like the month of playoff baseball has been dominated by people other than the amazing players and uh, the amazing plays and the amazing games that we want from October. And that started with the ball because there were some awesome games in the series in the early rounds. Like the Cardinals brave series was really fun for the first four games, but that series was also dominated by, wow, that fly ball looked like it probably was going to be a home run off the bat and it just died at center field in Bush stadium. And that has also led to some poor comments from Rob Manfred, who it seemed like was criticizing uh, the baseball perspective study from Rob Arthur uh, with some uh, just incorrect assertions. And that was what started the month. And then over the, the last week and a half, as the World Series has been happening, we have this whole other story, which is terrible in a different realm. And I'm I'm dreading Roberto Osuna probably getting the final outs of the World Series if the Astros win, because that seems like it would only further rationalize or justify from the Astros perspective how they've handled uh, this player for the last year and a half since trading for him. And I think, Ben, you said at the end there that it seems like perhaps an endemic problem and that that seems from the outside to be the case. Uh, There's been some really good reporting on that from both you and Jeff Passan and other people who are more connected to the the locker room and front office there. And it, it just seems like the, the Astros front office is the pinnacle of the baseball trend. We have all at various times decried, which is uh, winning at all costs, no matter how that affects the actual people involved or the competitive uh, nature of the game or the industry at large or teenagers being exploited or just in general, the idea of players as arbitrage and assets and Roberto Osuna last summer being a quote unquote distressed asset whom they could acquire for a cheaper cost than a, a player of his talent might normally go for. And it just seems like all of these trends are are creating this miasma inside the Houston clubhouse that is really distressing to observe when ideally we could celebrate them as one of the the greatest teams ever, but it's hard to do that both when this is the environment they've created and this is kind of the environment they've fostered as they like, like it's hard to rationalize celebrating them as one of the greatest teams ever when the way they they built one of those greatest teams ever involves all of these trends. You really start to start to feel for for people who look at all this and, and say, like, you know, why should I devote my emotional energy, my time, my money to to baseball when you know there are these systemic issues that you know it's hostile to to women, to to people of color in certain uh, in certain instances. Um, why is this a, a thing worth worth getting excited about? Worth worth obsessing over the way the the sport demands when it's at its best. I you know just to go back to the Taubman discourse specifically, there are two you know I part of part of my frustration is like a sense of helplessness that like there is an obvious wrong being perpetrated here, and I don't really know what there is that that we can do about it because you know Major League Baseball is not a, a famously transparent. Uh, organization one you know or one like uh that's that's usually willing to you know to to let social pressure di- dictate its actions you know they they have so much money they they have so much insulation uh that they can just do what they want to the detriment of of uh, uh you know an american institution i think that certainly the three of us but it, tens of billions of americans have invested a lot into uh in terms of money and uh and emotional attachment but there's two reactions that I think we can moderate that you know, really stuck out to me as being kind of gross. Uh, one of them is, you know, it, like the natural inclination, particularly after the Astros mishandled this so badly and then went on to win the first two games. It's like sh- is schadenfreude at the Astros losing. Um, and, you know, I think that's an easy thing to think. And I, it's certainly an understandable um, way to, cause you, you know, you don't want to go back and look on this season, you know, the Astros waltz to a title while this is hanging over, 
their head. You know, it's a, it's an unpleasant mental association to make. So I, you know, I understand that, but you know, this is such a bigger issue than than sports and sports banter in particular. Like it, it's just, I don't think it's it's useful to to act like. Uh, one club, you know, certainly one club or one organization or one front office or one set of players can can be particularly toxic, but they're not uniquely toxic. And that, you know, I, I think acting like if the Astros had lost the World Series, that this that justice would somehow have been served. I think it, it's kind of facile, and I I think it you know it it's its own lack it illustrates its own like lack of imagination and empathy. Um, Certainly not as as bad as the original sin, but you know it's something that that really bumps me out when I see that. Uh, the second thing is this is something that uh, I've seen from Asher's fans online, and, and like they they fire the they fired Taubman, they apologized, they finally after like six days of letting this you know really extraordinarily serious and specious accusation of Stephanie Epstein. Um, fabricating that story after letting that hang out there they apologized and it's over and we should move on like this the the one of the most troubling things to come out of this is is a line from Jeff Lunau's uh press conference where he said this is not endemic this is not a cultural issue and that couldn't be further from the truth i think the way they handled this the way you know certain elements of of uh the baseball power structure certain elements of, of fan bases have have rallied around them uh really illustrates that this is a an, an endemic cultural issue not just within baseball but you know within american society at large the the lack of serious you know the the lack of human consideration when making uh business decisions the lack of of sympathy towards survivors of of domestic abuse you know the the inherent sexism uh in what Taubman did you know all these things are are just really grave indictments of of our culture at large and i think that you know, if there is something to be gained from not being able to stick to sports here, which, you know, certainly we would all rather do that than have to, to deal with, you know, really abhorrent behavior like this. Uh, it's going to force us to reckon with it on some level, I hope. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's, it, this, this is so much, it's, it's so much bigger than Brandon Taubman, it's so much bigger than Jeff Lunauer or Jim Crane, um, that, we can't just move on because one guy got fired because the one guy is a symptom, not the disease. And that's, uh, that's the, the takeaway. And, and maybe this leads to, to just another, um, level of disappointment down the road when we, you know, when everybody seems to forget about this in a couple months. Uh, so I, yeah, I hope this, this does, um, cause a lot of people to, to look in the mirror because it's just been, I mean, it's been one of, of dozens of, of, uh, you know, really disappointing, toxic stories about baseball to, to come out in what should be a really celebratory time, really enjoyable time. And you know, Zach, you used the word miasma. That's you know, it, it's it's a, a pretty accurate way to put it. I, I do wonder if this story would be as prominent a week later. Not only if the Astros hadn't bungled the responses, multiple responses, but if the World Series games had themselves been better and we had more reason to talk about, uh, you know, whatever managerial decision happened last night or big comeback, but it, though that didn't happen and the Astros bungling did happen and, and that's where we are, where it really feels like this is the biggest story of the World Series. And as, as we've said a couple times, that's just not where baseball wants to be as the season comes to a close and we head presumably into another slow off season of free agent angst and labor unrest and all sorts of strife in yet another aspect of the off the field realm of baseball. Yeah. I, I, I mean, the premise of this show is sort of that we have time to cover all, you know, both of those angles, if there had been a great world series, but I, I do worry that you're, you're right. If we had, you know, if there had been more drama to, to these five games, you know, maybe, the Astros are, are able to to mitigate some of this, but it's just been it's been a tough week to be a baseball fan, which is not something you want to say during a World Series. 
Uh, yeah. They, and I wonder also if the Astros do finish off the Nationals here, does that help with sort of sweeping this under the rug? You know, because there will be certain people who say, hey, they fired the one guy who was directly responsible for this specific incident. They apologize. They issued a retraction. What more do you want? And meanwhile, of course, you know, I think a lot of their fans will be inclined to forgive and forget the front office that delivered a second World Series title in three years. Obviously, ownership has to be happy with the on-field results here. And if the results don't suffer and if attendance doesn't suffer and if this team, you know, which is seemingly one of the best of all time, goes on to win its second title, then are there ultimately any consequences here or does this just turn out to be a blip and whatever underlying issues exist that were briefly dragged out into the light, do they slither back under the rock again and we all convince ourselves that everything is fine? Yeah, which is not to say that if you're an Astros fan and you're happy that they and they do win the World Series and you're happy about that, that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It just, you know, no. we've, I, I think we do, like this is a, probably my big, biggest single gripe with with uh, American sports culture is like this sense that that your t- team's on-field success validates your morality uh, you know that like it goes beyond like the we thing that but like you know the Astros are winning so I'm I'm a righteous person you know I I think it's healthy for everybody to take a step back from you know the the culture that you belong to uh, and the behavior of some of the people in charge of it, you know, keep that, that distance. And, you know, I think that's regrettably becoming a little bit rarer. So, you know, it, you just have to look at everything in a broader social context and, you know, as unpleasant as that is to do from time to time. Um, all right. Anything else from on, on this from, from either of you? Well, on that note, I hope Strasburg and Verlander. Yeah. Have a good game tonight. Like this whole thing's a bummer, but it kind of, deserves to be yeah i uh, you know we spent probably about 20 minutes on this now i this is a more important story uh than the world series itself so i you know i think that you know it's it's worth talking about regardless of the quality of games but i you know like i said even we want to stick to sports from time to time and and, uh you know i i could definitely use a, a solid game six and maybe even a game seven who knows um all right well that'll do it for this week's edition of the ringer mlb show thank you zach Thank you. Thank you, Ben. My pleasure. Thank you, Bobby Wagner, our producer. Yeah, he's not there. All right. My pleasure as always, Michael. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Thank you to Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, and Dave Martinez for giving us stuff to talk about. Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, Enjoy the last game or two of the season, and uh, we'll be back to talk about it next week. See you later.